when I got out of my trafficking experience, unfortunately, I wasn't offered any resources or services. Nobody identified me, which was unfortunate because I had really almost every sign there that something traumatic had happened. And I, I went to um, a hospital setting seeking help. And so really the idea behind starting the foundation was I want to be the person that I needed 15 years ago to help be the voice I needed um, before I found mine and to help get me connected to the things that I needed um, for my healing journey. listeners. Welcome to Unseen, the Trafficked Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Rowland. You're going to get to hear true sex trafficking crime stories. These are stories that maybe never made to headlines. Maybe they weren't believed. And you're going to get to hear from survivors themselves tell the truths of sex trafficking. Join us and remember, listener discretion is advised. We understand the the greatness about our community and we know the struggles of our community. And I think that that is something to be excited for when we can come together and share stories like ours and be a voice for those who need us. You are worthy, you know, and you are, you're precious, you know, you're beautiful. And in spite of what you're going through, of what you've gone through, it does not determine who you are going to be in the future. It's just being able to tell my story to that one person who can relate or that one person who believes me. All that mess you went through, there's a message in that. And there's a message of hope and transparency and freedom for somebody else. There's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Your freedom is in your mouth, and it's the key to somebody else's chains. You matter, and your story matters always. You're you're taking the voices of the unheard, and you're letting them be heard in a very safe space. So welcome, Jenna, to Unseen the Traffic Truth podcast. Sometimes I get too excited to speak to the survivor leaders and those who are still working, but in a different aspect. And um, we could talk about that later, but I just wanted to start off by saying thank you for being here and having a voice for all of us, even if it's just the lived experience experts, the leaders, or little, you know, advocates, allies, however they are in the community in this movement that's still going on, live, <laughs> long and strong. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd like for to see if you want to kind of do your own introduction. Or yeah, okay, awesome. So basically, what I do is train law enforcement and hospital staff and other first responders how to identify victims of 
sex trafficking and labor trafficking and how to respond with trauma-informed care. And I'm a survivor of human trafficking myself, and I share my story in speeches. Sometimes it's small groups, sometimes it's going to um, safe houses and talking to people that are on their own healing journey, and then sometimes it's on bigger stages. And um, I also have a foundation just north of Sacramento where we assist victims, helping them get set up with the resources that they need. Um, and then equine therapy is a big part of what we do. Yes, I'm so glad you stopped right there. Can you talk a little bit more about that and just the importance of the, I don't even want to say the need, but just, you, you can just explain it more better than I can, because I think that every even if it's residential and long-term or short-term, I just think that there should just be a piece of equine therapy. And But people just think it's um, equine, sorry. It's just, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it, it's in terms of like, oh, we can't afford it. And, uh, you know, me being in my shelter space here, it isn't as affordable as we think. But I do want to talk about, I'm going to ask you to talk about that as well as the, the importance of it and just the healing power yeah well it. some might think well why the horse like mm -hmm. what would the horse have to do with somebody that's been through trafficking and the horse is a prey animal so when they experience a threat they want to get as far away from that threat as possible um we as humans do the same thing um the difference is once the threat is gone the horse goes back to a calm relaxed state Whereas we stay in a panic mode or stressed out or experiencing post-traumatic stress. So the horse teaches us to be calm and grounded and um, present, even if we're feeling stressful emotions. Um, it's also, you know, a thousand pound animal that we have to learn to trust and um, build a bond with. And um, it's a lot of responsibility. So when you're coming from a life of fear, like trafficking, um, you're learning to trust again, and you're learning to trust with this animal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is this part of your story or were you raised in, you raised up with horses and, and knowing this, or was this part of um, your journey after? Um... Yeah, I'm from a big horse family. So I grew up riding horses since, since I can remember. And it was always therapeutic. I didn't necessarily have to be riding for it to be a therapeutic experience, just grooming the horse and doing, you know, responsibilities that are needed to take care of the horse um, is all very therapeutic to me. And when I started the foundation, I was thinking of different things that I could offer. And the time I was volunteering for somebody that did a lot of horse therapy for autistic kids, and I suggested, hey, if I were to bring some trafficking survivors to you, could you offer this to them? And we slowly started doing it and it worked out really great. Yes. Even, um, you know, even in Hawaii, I tried <laughs> to offer that and we have a longer term facility here that um, wants to welcome that type of um, therapy as well. But when, when I started to do the research, we, uh, there, was a, there was a former social worker, I think she retired. And she also understood and had the same narrative that you're basically saying. And she really started to um, offer it at this one uh, ranch. And that's how we connected is we were just talking about the impact it can make with survivors of trauma. And yeah. even, uh, you know, 
autism and things like that. But I was just welcoming that specifically just because of everything you said. And it's just so amazing when this discussion can take place because there's another uh, uh, you know, survivor leader who we I had on the podcast earlier in the uh, seasons, Rayanne, she's out in Canada though, but oh. she's, you know, she had the same narrative with the horses and just animals in general too. Um, mm-hmm. So if I can ask this elephant in the room, how is it affordable for like programs um, and others to be able to utilize this? I guess you could just talk about in Sacramento, but you could do overall too. <laughs> So that, so that the listeners can be like, yes, this is what I want, but how can I? Yeah, well, um, we work off donations mostly, but have done uh, multiple fundraisers. And that just makes the difference. I mean, I mean, sometimes survivors need other things, but most of the time when people are donating to the Jenna McKay Foundation, that's ensuring that they're going to continue with their horse therapy. That is amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. So the Jenna McKay, you can give us, you'll give us all of your info later, but that is so amazing to hear that the money and the proceeds and donations go towards that, because that isn't something that we all can afford, even if we're, you know, looking for this for programming and uh, other things. So that's amazing to hear that. Um, And then when you said you started volunteering, did you mention that that was after or that was after your experience and situation or was that? Um, just because you knew the knowledge of the horses and you wanted to just kind of see the impact others can make besides the population of, you know, with autism and whatnot? Yeah, no, I really just wanted to, um, I moved um, to Northern California from Southern California Mm -hmm. and I volunteered in a couple different areas. One was this with the horses and one was with another anti-trafficking organization. Oh, wow. And it was really the volunteering was all kind of how everything started for me was let mm-hmm. me figure out what looks right for me on my own journey and how I want to help. And so, yeah, the horses in that sense was, oh, maybe I could, you know, because the foundation was getting started and I thought mm, this would be yes. really cool to be able to offer this as an option. You know, if I meet with a survivor, you know, I'd like to get her connected to other resources that she needs but say hey if you want to try this and you decide you like it it's something that we can offer you I love that because what I heard was not only were you volunteering (laughs) you were also doing your work as a survivor in the Mm -hmm. anti-trafficking in the with an organization in the anti-trafficking movement or were you not disclosing at this time but doing the work and starting no you said you were starting the foundation yeah, wow. I was starting this work and I had just, I really moved here to do this work and pursue it. So wow. it kind of started off with just volunteering and figuring out what I was going to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you saw the need. So you saw the need. Um, yeah. Okay. So if you don't mind, I'm going to um, ask if we could just kind of jump into elements of this, of your survivor story that impacted you to not only start your foundation, but also like you mentioned, you did the work, you're doing, you were doing the work with an organization and you were also volunteering to kind of see how this correlates. And I'd love to, to kind of hear it from the survivor's perspective to other survivors who are like, I'm already telling, you know, I'm telling my story now. I'm interested in what I could do in my own like organization or nonprofit that I'm with, or even starting something of my own. Um, Mm -hmm. So like, how did that all come to fruition? 
Well, so when I got out of my trafficking experience, mm -hmm. unfortunately, I wasn't offered any resources or services. Nobody identified me, which was unfortunate because I had really almost every sign there that something traumatic had happened. And I, I went to um, a hospital setting seeking help. And so really the idea behind starting the foundation was I want to be the person that I needed 15 years ago to help be the voice I needed um, before I found mine and to help get me connected to the things that I needed um, for my healing journey. And, um, you know, I don't have a story that's super common, even though I'm, I know it does happen this way. Um, I wasn't somebody that you might picture to become a victim of trafficking. I grew up with a pretty good childhood. I never experienced any sexual abuse. I went to a private Christian school, and at the age of 12, I started playing competitive volleyball um, with the goals to follow in one of my big sister's footsteps uh, to get a scholarship and play in college. So at a very young age, I could really see where my life was headed. And um, the person that would become my trafficker wasn't necessarily somebody in my picture to become a trafficker either. He went to the same school as me. He was one year older. He was from a good home. His past, his um, stepdad was a pastor and a chief in the Navy. His mom had a successful business in the community. And um, these are all things that were learned. Um, and he really, you know, graduated um, a year before me. And my senior year, I was struggling. My parents were separating at the time. And he kind of painted this picture that life would be great with him. And he got involved in criminal activity. And one of the things he learned about was trafficking. And um, during this time, he married me and he trafficked me out of the apartment we lived in. And that happened over the course of a year before I got away. Wow, Jenna. <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, I'm along with you in this conversation because, like you said, it was it happened 15 years ago, and it's unfortunate that you weren't offered services because it didn't look like what many people would think or are thinking. Even mm -hmm. now, I know we're trying, and you said that's a huge piece of your foundation is the advocacy with um, hospitals and law enforcement and different entities. Um, and even now in 2021, you know, it's still hard to really recognize the red flags. If they're not recognizing it, they're just not saying anything. They don't know who to say it to. Um, and that's so important in your thought with your foundation and the advocacy work that you guys are doing. Um, you mentioned that he learned about trafficking. Mm -hmm. Could you kind of explain that for the listeners to the degree of how you you guys are around the same age and school was you know in there in some way and yeah. what was he learning well it's hard to say really because um i know you know i knew i saw some of the things and he started mm -hmm. taking me into a lifestyle of partying and drinking and around people mm -hmm. that i probably never would have met otherwise and then it wasn't until i moved in with him that I started to see everything he was involved in, which was a lot of theft, um, mm. going and selling marijuana and prescription drugs and other mm. things that I was not aware of before. Mm. Um, but the people, and I was kind of just really young and naive and sheltered, and there was things I would see 
but I didn't really know what they were. Um, I didn't really know to the scope of everything that was going on. Um, but then we started going on some trips and one was to Las Vegas and there's a specific moment. I remember being on Fremont street and standing in a souvenir shop and looking out the window and he was talking to a man that uh, kind of looked like he could be in a gang or involved in criminal activity or a pimp or something like that. And they were talking, um, and laughing together, almost like they knew each other. And, uh, I remember standing there watching them thinking, why is he talking to that guy? And why does it seem like they know each other? And there was already a lot of abuse happening by this point. But after that trip, things started escalating. And there was never a conversation of, you know, this is what you're going to do. And this is what we're going to do to make money. There was never a beating. Um, he had just advertised me online without me knowing. And so men would come to the apartment and rate me and pay for it. And when this happened, you know, I grew up with the same movies and TV shows as everybody else. So, you know, pretty woman was prostitution and, and trafficking. I don't even think I've heard that word, but you know, that kid in that documentary chained to a radiator in another country, like mm -hmm. that's not what it looked like for me. And so I couldn't identify what was happening to me. I knew I would be, was being raped. I knew I was a victim. I knew I didn't want to be there. Um, but why is there money involved? Why is somebody handing him money and paying for that? And so, yeah, it, it's, he was really around a crowd that was involved in this kind of stuff. And that's where he learned, oh, this is another way that I can make money. Absolutely. So the exposure in the environment. And is it, is it, um, you know, appropriate to say that in your trainings, when you do speak with different um you know, populations, whether it's law enforcement or hospital or community service providers, do you bring up the awareness that we need to have when we are working with victims and seeing their partners and seeing, really trying to see their partner? Because even in domestic violence, we don't really recognize that there's even the components of like financial abuse or, you right. know, just these different entities. So I think in this movement, it's really, it, that's why I had asked, you know, how did he learn? Because it's a whole lifestyle that um, if we in this kind of victim role have connections with people like community service providers, and we're saying these things, it would help us like recognize it. So if you were connected to someone during that one year, what if you would have brought up like, hey, you know, it is kind of like domestic violence, but there's some kind of form of exchange with money or, you know, just like those mm -hmm. conversations, I think just need to be, um, you know, um, encouraged, should I yeah, say? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I okay. didn't even know that I was a victim of domestic violence because my idea of that was him hitting me and he mm. wasn't like physically hitting me. So you know, I knew I was uncomfortable and I knew I wasn't happy. Um, but it wasn't until years later once that, you know, I was sharing my story and talking about the trafficking and another survivor said to me, well, oh, so when you were experiencing the domestic violence first, and I was like, no, domestic violence, human trafficking. And she goes, honey, you were the victim of domestic violence. Before yes. the trafficking. And I was like, oh my God, of course I was, um, you know, things like blocking me in doorway, taking my paychecks, separating me from my family and support system, um, taking, uh, you know, keeping me from my family, um, 
taking my car keys, taking my phone, like all these different forms of of domestic Mm -hmm. abuse happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Mm -hmm. extreme control, which really just kept escalating right before he started trafficking me. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. And I just love the conversations, how you mentioned another survivor. And it's such a great community that we have that we can kind of like shoot off these kind of things around on our journey to say, no, this is what it is. Even with legal, like even when it's like legal stuff or like when it's um, time for other kind of supports that we think might work for us, like equine, because I tell you what, you go in some neighborhoods and they're like, what? You could do horse therapy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it just Mm -hmm. takes that uh, experience being shared that can change the whole game. So you know, so much like you do for your speaking engagements and, um, you know, you being featured on other podcasts as well, we always want to reach out to those survivors. So like, how can you explain the way that you were able to, you know, kind of get out, get of that, get out of that situation, even though I know it took a year. So I can't, you know, I don't want to force you to sum up everything, you know, because I know it wasn't going to be, it wasn't easy, but, you know, in ways in which that you can communicate that it is possible. Yeah, well, it thankfully it did end up being a hospital setting, even though it wasn't right when I was trying to reach out for it. So, you know, I got away from him and there was really kind of this understanding between us that where he thought I would never tell anybody what happened. And, you know, I went to that doctor wanting to, but I was scared to talk about it. But if somebody had, you know, provided a safe space for me and said, Hey, what really happened to you? Cause I, you know, I was a hundred pounds. My hair was falling out. I had bruising. I had a branding, um, all these things. And all I needed was to say, Hey Jenna, what happened to you? And then to tell me what happened to me. And then to say, Hey, we have these resources available to you and we are here to help you. But that didn't happen. So once I left that doctor's appointment, um, I just try to figure out my own life and, there was a destructive path for a while with unhealthy, unhealthy coping mechanisms and skills that things that did not help me further. But um, I tried to move on the best I could. And eventually um, I married, I had a son, we moved to Virginia. Um, we were, he was a mil- in the military, so we were stationed there. And I thought, okay, I've started this new great life for myself, so I don't have to ever talk about it problem was that I was experiencing post-traumatic stress you know my uh, triggers things that would show up my trauma would show up in nightmares and flashbacks and I'd have a lot of anxiety around it but I became so good at stuffing it down because I just wanted to move on I didn't want to talk about it Um, and I wanted to live the new life I had started for myself And then it was six years um, after I got away from my trafficker where I went to a routine checkup. And um, anytime I'd had any kind of pelvic exam, I always responded the same way, which was pretty much a panic attack. And, you know, by this point, I had given birth, um, been to the doctor plenty of times, but nobody really said anything about it. So I just assumed, oh, I guess this is uncomfortable for women and this is how this is normal until this doctor's appointment. And after the doctor's appointment, she called me into her office and she said, Jenna, have you ever been sexually abused? And it wasn't like in that moment, um, 
I just came out with everything and said, yes, this is what happened when I was 18. Please help me. But just by identifying me and asking me that, it like blew my mind because I remember thinking, wow, I went to the doctor's when I got away from him looking the way I did. Nobody said anything. And here I am six years later and I look totally normal and I'm acting totally normal. How does she know? Mm. And so you know, I didn't reach out for help in that moment, but she planted the seed. And um, a few months later, I had a breakdown and I went to uh, the emergency room seeking help. And I said, you know, I don't feel suicidal. I don't even feel depressed. Um, I just had some things happen in the past that I want to talk to about. Um, thinking that it would give me some kind of therapist or psychiatrist. Um and they described the place, and I said, there's no way I'm going, um, which was a psychiatric hospital. Oh, and wow. um, um, But after some conversation with the nurse, I finally agreed to go. Um, and it was just as scary as I thought it would be. And so as soon as I got there, I, I had in my mind, you know, do whatever you have to do to get out. So I'd go to all the different therapies, and I'd go to all my appointments. Um, and then after three days, um, I met with a psychiatrist and he said I was good to go home. The problem was, even though I wasn't talking fully about the things that happened to me, I hadn't yet talked about the trafficking mm -hmm. part. Um, it was still coming up. So mm -hmm. I was sent home with medicine and I had nightmares and I had an overdose. So then I went back to inpatient care and um, it was there that... Uh, you know, I remember that first day being back and I saw this woman that from my first visit in group therapies, I had heard some of the things that had happened to her and some were similar to the things that happened to me. And she was just like in the corner, holding herself, rocking back and forth, like nobody was there. And I thought, mm. if I don't get this out of me and get help for this, I'm going to end up like her or dead. And I, mm. my next therapy that day was art therapy. And the therapist asked us all to draw what we're afraid of. And she said, you can keep it in your binder or you can um, share it with everybody. And I drew stick figure men and I stood up and said, you know, when I was 18, I was married to somebody that had men come to our apartment and rape me and they paid for it. And I don't know what that means. And wow. it was like, the truth will set you free in that hospital with Barbara around it that I couldn't leave on my own free will. I was free for the first time. And wow. what was awesome about sharing my truth and what had happened was that team there really stepped in. And there was two people in particular, um, a therapist, a case manager who just went above and beyond from me and um, would take extra time with me and do these therapies and have long conversations with me and really cared about me um, and my healing journey. And I wasn't just some number on the list that they had to go through their, their day. They genuinely cared about me. Um, and uh, I started doing the work and it was there that I learned what I had was PTSD and what I survived was human trafficking. And having those terms, I don't think until I had those terms, I would be able to heal because I didn't know what I had lived through. And so it blew my mind. I couldn't believe, wow, that human trafficking, that's what I lived through. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and then PTSD, you know, as a young military wife, my idea of that was, well, that's mm -hmm. what you get when you go to war. Mm -hmm. 
And so I had no idea that that's something I could get. Of course, I could get it from all my traumatic experiences. So then I started to really put in the real work and do the healing, even to the point where I was told I could go home again, but I kept myself there to, wow. to do the work and, and heal from it. That is, that's amazing. That is very common what we hear, right? Unfortunately, I'm sure in your work, you're still kind of hearing the avenues where the, the, um, you know, the survivors aren't yet speaking of what happened to them, but mm -hmm. there's obvious signs that there's, there's needs, you know, there needs help in whatever form of that is, whether it, it is talk therapy or art therapy, or, you know, just kind of seeking medical attention for whatever resources that they need. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I really appreciate your focus is on sort of that because of your experiences. And it, it's so encouraging when the application is towards like what really helped you. And right. you didn't, you know, and even you said, you said, you know, that's not where I've, you know, that's not where I learned this, or that's not where I got the help. But like that one nurse planted the seed for a regular checkup, even right. in, you know, even in that situation, it, it proved that there was awareness of something and, and wow. And then look at this, like where you're, what ways you're able to try to help. Well, not try, but the ways you are helping others, because just in that moment, I'm connecting the dots to other situations where other people have experienced that in not just the medical setting, but, you know, like the mental health setting mm -hmm. and places are trying to establish themselves for those resources so that, you know, survivors can go to mm -hmm. somewhere once they realize what that, what, what's happening. And, and you, like you said, you never really talked about it. And that is one of the most common things too, because I don't know if, you know, while, when you were married, if your husband knew, because you weren't really you didn't really say you shared anything really you just kind of had you knew you had trauma and mm -hmm. you really didn't know it was human trafficking so right right and I didn't really know what had happened to me and I and I had shared I had shared with him and a couple of people that were close to me some of the abuse that I experienced from him so they knew you know that I was he was an abusive man and um some mm -hmm. of the the abuse I experienced and the sexual abuse I experienced from him, but I never talked about the trafficking. It just seemed, it it, it seemed like, no, I didn't think anybody would even believe me in the first place. Mm -hmm. It seemed so far out there that that could even have happened. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sad that it's still common even 15 years later. Right. Um, and for the family and the friends and the partners that we have that we told, you know, these pieces of our stories to, how can we send a message to them for survivors now or victims currently? And they're getting this kind of information. What would you say to them? Because I know for me, you know, for me and other survivors that I've spoken to, they're like, they question, why don't we go get, you know, tell on them to law enforcement? Why don't we go say something? Even if it was just him forcing, you know, other men to come to the apartment, I mean, him, forcing the men, arranging the men to force themselves on you and rape you. Like, we don't even know what it is, but they're encouraging us to say, go to the police, um, you know, yeah. tell on him or, you know, um, so, so how can we encourage them? Because that's another piece of it, right? They're also silent. And right. they're also, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's something that survivors often hear. Well, why didn't you run? Why didn't you call 911? And it's like, well, I did. That's why I'm here. Why didn't I do that sooner? <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can mm-hmm. even share a couple instances, you know, uh, everything that led up to that first night, um, you know, I wanted to call home. All I wanted to do after that first rape was go home to my mom and my dad. And, um, mm-hmm. but you know, my trafficker, he didn't take me to other cities or other states or other countries. I was 15 minutes from home, but he still went to extremes to keep me from my family and support system, even going as far as getting a restraining order against my dad to keep him away from me. So Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I could go home. Um, I also had a really negative experience with law enforcement that made me feel like they wouldn't care about me. Um, so I didn't feel like I could call 911. I didn't think that was an option. Um, and I also wasn't educated on this. So, you know, I didn't even know there were things like rape kits. I didn't know what would happen if I did. You know, there was a couple times, um, you know, when I was training for volleyball, I had a weight trainer and he had trained my older sister and he started training me at 12. And there was one day that I was driving, my trafficker was driving me and um, we pulled up to a stoplight and I was in the passenger seat and my weight trainer pulled up in the car next to us. And you would think, you know, we put ourselves in the situation. Well, why didn't you just wave at him and ask for help and get out of the car and run into his arms? Mm -hmm. Well, that's all I wanted to do. But instead, not only did I sit there and not do that, I sunk back into the seat so that he wouldn't see me because he saw me as this buff athlete headed to play college volleyball and now I was skinny and this girl that experienced all this trauma and I was embarrassed and ashamed Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. another thing was you know halfway through my that year of being trafficked um there was a night my trafficker opened the front door to the apartment and he said leave Jenna if you want out so bad go and I started to walk out of that apartment and then I stopped and I thought where And Mm. he really knew exactly what he was doing in that situation. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he, he knew that I didn't think I had anywhere to go. And I walked right back into my trafficking experience, not because I wanted to be there, not because, um, you know, I wasn't scared and I didn't, Mm -hmm. I wanted, I wanted out. I just didn't know what would happen to me and what my options were. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's another thing that's so important is like education in schools. If I had been educated on this in schools and what my options were Mm -hmm. and what I could do and what would happen to me there, my healing journey might've started even sooner and possibly it could have been prevented. Oh man, Jenna, like I, I just want to close with that because that's like, point blank period it's like that and a plus you know plus the people that are around us even you know like I know you mentioned that the the shame and the guilt especially when you're not saying anything in those moments when and a lot of people are thinking that and that oh why didn't you leave it was a whole year but even after you mentioned you know having this lifestyle moving to Virginia and you were already like six years away you know you had got away from him but that still wasn't the time to you know, go to the police or tell everybody what happened and, you know, and explain like, I'm, you know, I'm this and I'm that or, or seeing it like, because we still didn't see it. Like, I don't know in that six years, kind of like you mentioned, if you were seeing like, oh, this is human trafficking, this is on the billboard, this is on the thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we didn't see that at that time. So everything was just hard. But now, 
now moving forward, we have so many tools that we can still incorporate into schools, into family homes, into different settings like you're doing with the hospitals and and our family and friends and allies, like, you know, they can say, you know, we should go talk to somebody about this, or is this what it is? And like, not maybe be so fearful of having these conversations mm-hmm. anymore, you know? Right. right. Yeah. And it's an uncomfortable conversation to have, but it's necessary, you know, and we teach kids in school, you know, stop, drop and roll. Well, how many kids are experiencing fire at school, but how many are experiencing sexual abuse or being groomed Absolutely. on the internet? Um, so it's a conversation that needs to be had. I had a really cool conversation with my own son, who's now just turned 11. And um, we were driving the other day and he asked me, so what are you speaking to the police about? And I said, human trafficking. And I had explained it to him in the past. Um, but he asked again, he said, what is that? And I explained in a very just basic terms that he could understand. And he was sitting there with it. And then he looked at me and said, so slavery still exists. Wow. And it blew my mind that he pieced that together. I never used the term modern day slavery when explaining to him. And I yes, son, it, it just looks a little different than it used to. Um, so they can understand it and be aware of it, um, even at a young age. Yep. And it's, I mean, I'm like 40 episodes in already, Jenna, and it's the same conversation. Like we're all encouraging these conversations, especially in kids and in schools because they can understand it just like you Mm -hmm. said they can um man this this was amazing is there anything else you kind of like want to mention I do before we do leave I just want to thank you for sharing the really critical parts that are that were mentioned so that we can really understand like this isn't just um telling everybody human trafficking doesn't look like this you know it's really how can we gather this information to do better? And yeah. that's why you're continuing the work that you do. So I just hope I didn't miss anything if you wanted to add. Yeah, um, I think it's important that we recognize all the forms it takes place and all the way it looks. Because if we're picturing it that one way, you know, we saw in that movie one time that's probably sensationalized, then we're missing the victim that's right next door to us. Um, you know, I was the person working normal jobs that are in the day. You came to my store. And little did you know that I was being raped that night. And um, so it's important that we identify and we offer help. And and one of the biggest things to educate and say, hey, there's resources available to you. I had no idea. Um, So if I had somebody that came along, I remember one of the jobs I worked at while being trafficked, I was working at a little boutique. And a few years ago, I met with um, the owner that I had worked for oh, wow. and she always knew something was wrong. She'd always ask me, are you okay? Are you okay? And she asked me, what could I have done? And I said, well, the first thing, maybe instead of asking me if I was okay, which is such an easy question to blow off, uh, maybe if you mm-hmm. asked me if I was safe, um, mm. because that would have really triggered something like, oh my gosh, what does she know? Can I reach out to her? Can I, will she help me? And then mm-hmm. following that up with, hey, I can get you help if you want it. And um, letting me know that that was available to me. Um, and so we have the opportunity, you know, it's not just doctors and lawyers and police officers and um, people working in direct service with victims, but just people in the community to be aware, just like we were, you know, we became aware about domestic violence and child abuse and things like that. We can be aware about human trafficking and, and victims in our own community.
if you um, go to jennamckay.com and it's mckay m-c-k-a-y-e um, there's some more information on it and there are options to donate and there's also a way to contact me um, and it's in the you know I'm about 45 minutes north of Sacramento and if it's something that somebody wants to come try we can definitely figure that out and um, see if it's a good fit and uh, and yeah get get them up on the horse <laughs> <laughs> it is the coolest thing you know like when I hear a girl's story and some of the things she's been through and then to see her smiling up on a horse with her arms out like it's just it it makes my day so <laughs> oh that is amazing yeah I definitely I definitely have been picturing that up until the time that we are talking today. <laughs> That's how so I always th- be pictured. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then even to this moment, I'm just like, it's just so happy to just hear that and that it's a definitely an opportunity in someone's journey because, you know, mm-hmm. like you mentioned before, it's not, it's not ideal. You're like art therapy worked for you, you know, for one yeah. piece of it, you right. know? And it's just amazing when I hear just different things like yoga might help for somebody else. And now, you know, this could help for somebody else. So it's just, yeah. really, I'm just really thankful for the conversation that we had today. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. I appreciate you giving this platform and, and for all the work you do. Thank you. Oh man, I think this is like it. We were just flowing and having a good conversation. <laughs> I don't want it to end, but I just think that, you know, we don't have to beat the door down, but we, we're, we're telling everybody what they need to know, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, if there's any other questions and you want to reach Jenna, definitely go to her website and then I'll definitely have her resources and links to her website in the podcast episode, but I'm closing it out today and maybe you'll see Jenna at one of these other kind of trainings, or maybe she could train for your organization if you're interested as well, mm-hmm. because this is so important with um, geez, just everything that she, she kind of mentioned today. And I know I'm, I'm going on again, but I just really, it's just really important how you mentioned the different medical settings and mental health settings that were impactful in your journey. So we just need to all pay attention to, to that as we continue our work in this movement. Yay. So Jenna, have a good day. Again, I'm still picturing you like you're about to go on a horse right now, but (laughs) I'm just going to picture that so I can (laughs) please do. (laughs) All right. We'll be in touch. I know I will any for anything else too. And if there's any resources that you might be able to offer, if I get in touch with a survivor or community member in the Sacramento area. Yeah, please do. Thank you so much. All right. Bye Jenna. (laughs) Bye. Hey, it's Victoria. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Unseen, the Trafficked Truth Podcast. Thank you for being a part of hearing and listening to voices that were often unheard, underrepresented, and feeling as though their stories weren't seen, heard, or believed. And I hope that you stay tuned for another episode as we will bring you weekly episodes released on Fridays of survival stories, controversial conversations, and coverage of stories that never really make it to headlines. And if you haven't yet, check out season one. All right, check y'all back for next Friday, Unseen the Traffic Truth Podcast.